of a sudden you like you hit a brick wall because not only do you not have the authority that you thought you had, but actually a whole bunch of other things are broken. And you suddenly realize the leader that you inherited, you know, you probably thought the leader before you was an idiot and you'll be able to do the job so much better. When you get into the job, you're like, oh my God, I didn't realize the half of it. Like this leader was just like holding this thing together by bits of string and sticky tape. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be, and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community for designers to grow their emotional intelligence. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Andy Budd. Andy is a design leader, conference speaker, startup advisor, and coach. He co-founded ClearLeft, the first dedicated UX consultancy in the UK, along with the leading design and UX London conferences. He's a member of the Adobe Design Circle and has appeared on both Wired 100 in BIMA 100 lists of influential leaders in tech. He's currently helping startup founders make the most of design in his role as an expert in residence at Seedcamp, Europe's most successful early stage venture fund. We dive into what you give up and what you gain in the shift from a design role to a design leader role and how to navigate common pitfalls. This episode is full of honest and actionable insights to guide you into choosing a path that's most meaningful to you. Welcome, Andy, to the show. Well, look, lovely to meet you all. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, thank you so much for, for being here. And uh, when, when we were jamming a bit of what the exact topic that we wanted to, to dive into, uh, a common inflection point that I hear within the design to be community and when reflecting on my own career as a designer is what is this contributor into leadership look like? Um, and how can folks best set themselves up for success, uh, upon stepping into leadership, whatever the hell leadership means, which we'll, which we'll dive into. Uh, so maybe turning back the clock a little bit, I'm curious if there was a point in your career that you realized you were ready to move into a leadership role? I mean, it's difficult thinking about my own journey because it was probably a little bit kind of non-standard because my first leadership role was founding a company. And when you found a company, um, the first time that you are effectively a manager of somebody is when you hire your first person. So it tends not to be a conscious decision to become a manager. It tends, if you're a founder of a company, to be a conscious business decision. And then you just realize, oh, I've, I've hired somebody or I've hired two or three people. I now better be a manager. Um, and to be honest, I think like a lot of people that become managers, you know, I wasn't a particularly good manager at the start. And I'm not even sure I'm a particularly good manager now. I think it's... Um, it's a challenging transition for a lot of people, particularly for a lot of designers. And at the moment, I do a lot of coaching with, with designers that have transitioned into management. And the sort of the same, the same kind of challenges sort of keep coming up. Um, namely, what typically happens in most instances, you're really good at your job and your job is design. You're probably a senior IC. Um, somebody in the organization has seen a spark in you. Um, there's a desire to maybe keep hold of you in your job, but you're sort of wanting to progress in your career. Maybe you want to make more money. Maybe you want to have more status. And so you get moved into management. And there is a natural assumption that because you were being good, nay, excellent as an individual contributor, suddenly you will become an amazing manager. And, and the realization is actually that doesn't happen because what's happening is you're taking someone that's good at doing one thing and giving them a whole new job with a whole new set of expectations and skills, often with zero training. And suddenly you expect these people to kind of be operating at the same level as they were previously. Um, this transition is really, really tough. I think it's tough for a, a bunch of reasons. First off, when you're in that kind of situation where you are given, you know, sort of almost like a battlefield promotion, you know, you, you are leading a team of people, maybe you're a, a, a lead contributor, there's a realisation that there's three or four or five of you in the team now, they need a manager, they turn to the most senior person. Um, in that instance, 
you probably don't have an awful lot of basis to understand what good management looks like because maybe you don't have a senior design leader on the team. Maybe you've never worked under a head director or VP of design. So this is not only your first time in this role, but it's probably or, or quite possibly the first time the organization has ever had that role. Um, this has a number of different problems. First of all, um, the organization doesn't necessarily know how to relate to you because they've not had a design leader before. Secondly, you don't have any kind of um, sort of modeling you can follow. Like it's really great if you've worked amongst other amazing design leaders because you can pick up you know, trends from them. Also, weirdly, it can be great if you worked under terrible design leaders because you're like, I'm never going to be like that person again. This can be like an anti-persona. It's like, I'm going to do everything the opposite from, from this terrible leader. <laughs> and, and then sort of the third or the fourth thing, I've kind of lost my count here, but whatever the last thing is, it's <laughs> it's that you often go into this role with none of the sort of the, the frameworks in place. If you are a senior leader in a big tech company, there's lots of scaffolding there to support you. There's lots of HR documentation. There's lots of performance review documentation there's probably some kind of like career ladder and if you're taking over this role for the first time and you're the first person that's been in this role you're having to deliver all of this stuff from scratch so you kind of find this kind of new leader kind of death spiral I sometimes call it which is a bit of a challenge but you know if you're taking on the first design leadership role ever there's often an expectation that you're still delivering design work so you're delivering design work, but then you're also having to recruit. You're also having to put all these operational things in place. Often you can't do both, at least within the time available. So either you go to what you know, which is design, and you deliver really, really amazing design work, but your ability to lead your team suffers. And, you know, maybe that's evident in performance reviews. Maybe it's evident in, you know, um, team uh, kind of churn. Maybe it's evident in your ability not to recruit as quickly as is, is needed. Alternatively, you go the other route, which is you focus on the design leadership stuff, but your, your craft, your ability to ship becomes really compromised. And it's really tough if like people are looking up to you as an amazing design leader and they're like, well, actually, Andy, hasn't, Andy isn't shipping his targets. And if Andy's not hitting his targets, why should we hit our targets. And so invariably what happens is people end up doing stuff outside work, evenings and weekends. This is great if you're a young dude with, with no um no kind of family, you know, kind of commitments, if you've got kids, if you've if you're older, if you've got caring roles, it's almost impossible to kind of spend your days doing your actual job and then your evenings and weekends trying to pick up the slack. And so what I tend to find is a lot of um the people that come to me for my coaching advice is they did their first design leadership role. It was an unmitigated disaster. They don't want to have that same experience again. And so in their next job, when they've been made a head of design, they kind of want to work with somebody who has been in that position before. So somebody who can point at things and say, sorry, this is turned into a sales pitch. I didn't mean it to be, honestly. So, um, but, but, but what you tend to find is people just want a co-pilot. They want somebody that, um, that they can say, like, is this normal? Because they've never experienced before. You can go, yeah, that's normal. Or they can say, like, what do you do in this instance? Because, you know, often they're learning things for the first time. And you go, actually, this thing that looks really novel, you know, you know read this article, look at this blog post, grab this template. Um, and so sometimes it's just like somebody to, to be on your side to kind of say that all these things, all these feelings you're, you're experiencing are new and they're common. You know, don't worry about the imposter syndrome. Don't worry about kind of thinking you're a bad designer. Because this is the other thing, like, and this is the really kind of dirty secret, like, amongst most design leaders, whether they're one year in or, or, or 15 year in. Because I, I kind of like, I sort of manage the whole gamut. Like, I look after a lot of younger design leaders who are in their second and third job. But I also look after, like, VPs of design who are managing managers, sometimes who are managing managers who are managing managers. So it can go really, really sort of deep. Um, and everyone, everyone in whatever level feels like they're making it up as they go along. Every person in every level feels like a massive imposter. They feel like at some stage they're going to be unmasked, Scooby-Doo style for the fraud that they are. Um, because most people in these roles, it's the experiences they're having are the first time they or anybody in the organization have experienced it. And so there's a real sense of kind of nervousness around that. And so just having someone to say, it's okay, this is normal. It happens to everybody. It can, can just sort of calm people's nerves. And 
one, thank you, thank you for for all that uh, that co- that context. Um, and two, one one quick thing in, in the chat, uh, Laura, our head of community, just underlined. Uh, if anyone has any questions for Andy, we're going to be taking questions at the end, so we'll be taking them in chronological order. So populate any questions you have in the chat, and we'll get to them uh, towards the end of our conversation. Uh, I digress. So. No one knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> no one knows what the hell they're doing. Uh, and it takes a lot of, when looking at this through the lens and umbrella of emotional intelligence, it takes a lot of one awareness of what your current experience is and not allowing that to cloud, uh, is this even happening? <laughs> and then two, being able to manage it and not dictate the quality of your work. Uh, one, it kind of turning back to something you said at the beginning um, for folks maybe on this call or who are listening later who are stuck in this in-between of straddling this IC work and in management work and they're forming this new <laughs> role in their company, what, what do you have to say for that person to maybe help give them a bit more space and then lean into a certain aspect of that role? Or I don't know, my, my empathy goes out for, <laughs> for, that, for that person. It's super tough. I mean, transitioning from being a, a, a an IC to a first time leader is is really hard. And um, I think there are environmental factors that can help. I think fundamentally, if you're in a fast moving company, if you're in a fast moving startup, um, then what will happen is you will you will move through the the, the the duality of IC and manager really quickly. So if you're adding like, you know, one person on the team every sort of like couple of months, really quickly you would have built out a team and a bench that's so strong that there's no expectation that you'll be doing IC work. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself causes a problem because a lot of people who want to become more senior in their career, designers, love doing the, the individual contributor work. And so actually just having that conversation around people as to whether they – you know, whether they are really ready for management, because because management in most instances means stepping away from the thing you love. And that can be really tough. And actually, sometimes the, the individuals are more of a blocker than anything else, because they're, you know, in some instances, the company is wanting them to kind of wring every amount of creative value out of them. But for sometimes it's the individuals that are saying, I don't want to let this go. And so if they're spending two or three times doing the, the work that they love, Unfortunately, they're not doing the management stuff, which is probably stuff they don't love as much. Um, and so you can get in your own way. Um, like I say, if you're in a fast-growing company, you can you can grow your way out of it. If you're not in a fast-growing company and you find yourself having to, you know, be an IC and a manager for six months, a year, 18 months, um, the only way I think you can really manage this is, well, is to have honest conversations with your bosses, to have honest conversations around what the role of a leader is. And one of the things I suggest is a lot of things, a lot of, one of the things that a lot of first-time leaders do is they realize they've got a team of five or six people that have got varying different levels of skill. They need to put in a, a leveling chart, a leveling framework. And what they usually do is they go, okay, well, I'm only going to do it for the IC. So I'm going to say, this is a designer, this is a senior designer, this is a lead designer. What I think you also should do is map out your own leadership journey. So say, I'm here at the moment, I'm a head of design. The next level is a director of design. The next level is a um, a VP of design. And outline what you think the roles are and what you think the expectations are. Because by having these levels set down, it allows you to have conversations with the people who are hiring you to be able to say to them, look, actually, like, the role of a, of a manager is a full-time manager. The role of a lead is, 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 a, is a practitioner. I'm sitting somewhere in between these two roles. Um, I'm happy to do this for a certain amount of time, but at some stage, I'm going to need to sort of fully take on all of the expected behaviours of a leader, and that means giving up being an IC. And just having that conversation lets people realise that, that you're seeing your current role as a transitionary role and you need their help to get you from one stage to the other. It's kind of, uh, you know, I kind of don't know if you remember, like, from, from university, you used to have these ideas of, like, atoms in shells and um, energy levels and, and, and I think it was kind of electrons would jump up to the next shell level. Um, 
And that's kind of what you need to do as a, as a manager. You need to kind of like be in this sort of um, balanced state. And if you're in between, you're in a really, really unbalanced state. And that's not good for you. It's not good for your, your health. It's not good for the team. It's not good for the team health. So have those conversations. Secondly, be able to know what the next steps look like. So be able to say, look, you know, these, this is the direction I'm heading in. The other thing I often advise people to do is to create a little pie chart of where they're putting their effort at the moment. You know, so it's like I'm I'm putting 60% of my time on, on managing or delivering design in this team. That means I can only put 30% of my time managing my, my teammates. I can only put 10% of my time on recruitment. I can only put 5% of my time on whatever it is. And then map out where you'd like to be. And again, when you're having your one-on-one conversation with your boss, just be honest and say, look, this is where my energy is now. This is where I need to be in six months' time. You know, these are the things I think I need to do in order to get there, in order to be able to do all the amazing management stuff, in order to be to, to deliver your aggressive recruitment um, schedule, in order to um, make sure that the, that the sentiment in our design team goes up rather than down. I need to do less of this and more of this. And then as long as you've had that conversation with your boss and your boss agrees, then any good leader, any good practitioner just starts making that journey towards that destination. And the reality is if your company isn't willing to let you move to that next kind of you know, steady state, um, you are going to experience burnout. You know, And, and burnout is a very real thing for, for early managers because um, they're constantly trying to do too much. They're constantly feeling the stress of doing too much. And you know, if you can't, if you can't get to that solid state, you might find yourself yeah, burning out in kind of six, nine, 12 months, which is not good. It's not good for anybody. So, so unfortunately, what I tend to find, um, you know, this isn't always true, but what I tend to find is first-time managers often end up working in the company for 18 months and going, this is crazy. I don't see any end of light at the end of the tunnel. I've had these conversations with my bosses, but I'm still being expected to do 150%. And you can only really do 80%, to be honest, because you need a bit of like breathing room. Um, I need to move somewhere which is a little bit less crazy. And, and so what often happens is you might want to then go, okay, well, I want to be surrounded by people that understand design. I want to be surrounded by people who I can model good behavior for. So I'm going to go into a much larger company where I'm ahead of design, but there's a VP of design that I report into. And if you go and work in a bigger company where you've got maybe two or three other heads of design, there are processes and there are practices and there are the scaffolding that I talked about. And, and maybe after two or three years of working in a more mature company, when you've got all of these tools and all of these experiences, then you might want to go back into that kind of like crazy startup world as, as the first design leader, because you have, you've done the training, basically, you've, you've, you've done the reps and now you know what you're doing. Um, it's, you know, it's really, really tough to, to be in that, that world if you, if you haven't done the reps, I'm afraid. I was talking about this with another podcast guest, actually, uh, similar, but adjacent, um, but more through, I'm, I'm not going to give it, a, give it, a, give it away of what, what we're talking about, but more in the lens of having this deep well of experience. And when talking about a deep well of experience, it doesn't mean that you have 20 years of, of design experience per se. It could be you have one or two years of design experience, and then you can also pull on all of your other experiences from maybe university or even high school or whatever it may be. Um, And I also loved that you highlighted the the nonlinear aspect of career and leadership and stepping into to management. because I, I vividly remember early on in my career, I was like, okay, you move from here to here to here to here. And that is the linear path that, that you follow. Um, but I feel like much of what you alluded to was, okay, how can, how can you check in with yourself and understand, okay, where am I now? Where, where do I want to go? And what can, and this goes with the, the mindset that we were talking of a bit of, this massive imposter syndrome that many people feel and struggle managing. Um, what can make me feel and what's underneath that is feeling safe. So what, how can I most feel psychologically safe and trust myself in these different situations? Um, 
I mean, it's again, it's a really good question. I don't know if I've got any sort of like really easy answers. I mean, I think you you need to have a really good support network. Mm-hmm. And, and that means um, having partners and friends and family who understand where you're coming from and can help you if things get a little bit tense and, and struggle. You need to have downtime, you know, holiday time. You know, one of the things that I always find quite surprising but also quite annoying about sort of the american system is how little holiday time you get like holiday time is massively important particularly for leaders who are overwhelmed and particularly if you need to take a few days off or a week off to kind of think and and plan and so you know like for me holiday isn't a it isn't a bonus you give to people it's it's a important you know it's it's like it's like you know going on a marathon you need to have time to recover and holiday time is that current recovery time and often the recovery time is the most important valuable time because your body gets to rebuild and uh, and prepare itself and if you're constantly sprinting and there's no end in sight that's really really challenging um you know i talked about kind of being a coach and 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 being a sort of a wing person to to people who are going through this and i think that's really important you know i've started seeing and encouraging particularly early stage startups when they're looking to hire um their first design leader to, to give them coaching straight out the bat you know if you're you know you could go out and hire somebody you know, that's done five, six years as a senior design leader in, in a big tech company, be paying them 250k a year. Um, but you're not, you're you're hiring somebody for you know on 120k a year. So there's going to be a delta, there's going to be a gap in, in their experience, there's going to be a, a gap in their kind of resilience and just filling that up with with support, you know, so you you've got somebody that can help them um uh, along the way, I think is 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 super important. But I think again, you know, a lot of it comes down to, and we'll probably come on to this in a second. But you know, obviously, this talk or, or your whole topic is around kind of emotional intelligence, and and some of it is around kind of characteristics. I mean, you know, equanimity, I think, is a really really important skill for a leader. Equanimity is this sort of idea or, or kind of quality that you are able to be sort of quite calm and quite clear thinking when everything else is going crazy. And if you're in an early, say, startup, particularly, you're often in environments where you can't control. You're often in environments where your backlog is ever-growing. And you've got all of these things that are massively important, and there's no way you're ever going to kind of deal with them all. And so you're in this kind of tumultuous environment where, you know, you can have all of this, this stress seeping into you, and there's no release because this backlog of work is ever growing or you can be somebody who can be quite calm and, and, and have this sort of this sense of rising above the, the what's going on and that like I say that requires a strong support network and also it probably requires you know things which which you know um you know a lot of people might think are a little bit kind of fluffy like um meditation mindfulness practice I mean one of the things I find that is really common amongst leaders I coach is a lot of them are are finding ways to kind of get sort of peace and calm in their lives. They might have a meditation practice or they might have an app that they use. They might just, you know, go for long walks in the countryside to clear their mind. You know, some people I know love playing music and it's this sort of the sense of flow that they get. That they, you know, if they've had a stressful meeting, they might just go and hit the drums or, or play keyboard for 20 minutes. But but things that can kind of um bring those stress levels down, I think are, are hugely, hugely important. Yeah. I, I've spoken about this, uh, many, many, many times, uh, since meditation. And one of the hats I wear is a meditation teacher. Um, and, uh, it's been instrumental to, I like, we wouldn't be on this call right now if I didn't meditate <laughs> period. <laughs> um, and I would be a mess. Um, but the metaphor that I like to use a lot when thinking about uh, the importance of equanimity or having that time to rest or playing music or accessing, accessing that flow state, when you're deeply focused, you're thinking of the mind like a, a sky, the clouds are really, really dense and you have a single point of focus, um, but allowing different ideas to arise, clouds start to dissipate and float away. And thus, that really creative idea that you've been thinking of for so long, and you've really been hoping, slowly bubbles to the surface. And maybe that's going on a long hike. Maybe that's in the shower. Uh, maybe that's cooking your favorite meal. Maybe that's spending time with, with your with your kid, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, but using and reframing that like unproductive, and I'm putting that in quotes, 
time actually as productive uh, is such a essential mental shift. Yeah, I, I, like I say, a lot of this is about resilience. I think if you're, particularly if you're a designer, I think the transition between IC and designer uh, design leader is really really challenging because quite often as a design leader, you 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 spend long bouts of time in focus work, which almost has a meditative quality, yeah. and secondly. Um, you get a real sense of achievement at the end of the day when you look at the work you've done and you see that you've 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 designed your flows or whatever it is you're working on. Like there's a real sense of achievement. One of the challenges of moving into leadership is you don't get that. You know, you don't you can't sit back at the end of the day and feel really, really happy about a tangible thing that you've created. Um, so what ends up happening is you end up living vicariously through others. You, you end up living vicariously through the passion of your team, the output of your team. Um, you know, like I say, you get this never-ending backlog. As soon as you've done something, something else pops up. And so that making that transition and being aware that you are going to be working in a constant state of flux where nothing will ever be finished, nothing will ever be perfect. This is another reason why I think a lot of designers struggle is as designers, like we're really good at seeing what's wrong. Like we're pattern matching animals. We're really, really good at seeing what's broken. The challenge is like we're really good at fixing it when it comes to UI level. It's really, really difficult for us to fix it when it comes to organizational, cultural, kind of behavioral level. And a lot of the things that we will inherit as a design leader, we just won't be able to fix. And actually what happens is you see this kind of cycle whereby one of the reasons I think a lot of designers move into leadership is they've spotted all these things that are broken. And they have this thinking that like, well, if I just move into leadership, I will have the authority to fix all these things. And, and so you go in with this really running kind of like clear idea that you're going to make everything better. And all of a sudden, you like you hit a brick wall because not only do you not have the authority that you thought you had, um, but actually a whole bunch of other things are broken. And you suddenly realize the leader that you inherited, you know, you probably thought the leader before you was an idiot and you'll be able to do the job so much better. And then you get into the job being like, oh, my God, I didn't realize the half of it. Like this leader was just like holding this thing together by bits of string and sticky tape. And actually, like, you know, and so you often kind of get this sort of ball being passed and and. And you know, designers I work with who are ICs often get really upset when, you know, they've they've created a thing and it's launched. It's only 80% of what it could be. You know, I have to kind of talk a lot of designers down off the, off the, off the edge because they're like, I'm so angry with my company because it could have been so perfect and it's only 80% there. And a lot of the time I'm like, well, just you know, rejoice in the 80%. Like imagine what how bad this thing could have been without you. As soon as you jump into management, it's not 80%. It's like 10%. Like you will be at a company for three or four years and you will have made it 10% better if, you know, if you're amazing. And if you're not amazing, you might have made it two or 3% better. And that can be really, really tough to kind of look back at a, a two or three year career and, you know, a stint in the company and not necessarily be able to see all the impact you've had. One of the things, actually, one of the practices, you know, thinking about kind of emotional, um, uh, um, uh, sort of skills is keeping a kind of a success diary, like keeping a diary of all the things you've achieved, because it's easy to see tangible things that you've done in interfaces. You can point to them, but quite often, like having that conversation with a one-to-one with a person that was thinking of quitting, th- that you you help them not quit, or maybe vice versa. Maybe someone was, you know, staying for for for, for too long out of a misguided sense of trust, and you're like. I want you to be, you know, to be happy. And if that means you leaving and finding another job, let me help you find another job. Or maybe it's just kind of some, you know, strategic wins, you know, whatever it is, keeping a log so that when you look back over two or three years, it doesn't all munch together. I think a lot of design leaders kind of a sort of the proverbial um, sort of a lobster in a, in a or frog in sort of slowly boiling water. Like they often don't realize that the significant effect that they've had because, the medium for change now is culture and behavior. It's not interfaces. And these things are often hidden. So, so having that kind of practice of, of, of really thinking about what effect you've had and reflecting back um, c- can make you feel really, you know, much, much better about the impact you're having. It's, it's also what, what you highlighted is a, it's a form of a resilience practice. Uh, yep. So uh, my, my mind is very visual, so it works it in metaphors. But uh, if you imagine a, a cup, um, and by having the success bucket, you keep putting water in the cup. M- less likely, if a big gust of wind comes, the cup won't fall over if there's a lot of water in it, which is all those successes. But 
if there's no successes in there and a big gust of wind comes, the cup's fallen over. That's not fun for anyone. And that's burnout. That's overwhelmed. That's all the things that are, are not so fun. So having this, this practice of successes or noting any of those wins is also a really essential form of resilience building as well. Um, I want to I want to be mindful of our time, and I know that folks have started to populate questions into the chat. So, if folks have any other questions, feel free to type them into the chat, and we're going to start answering them. Uh, so, first question we have from James: uh, Accepting each of us will make us have to make it up as we go while learning to be an effective design leader. Are there specific resources, books, leaders to follow, etc., or specific soft skills you you'd suggest one start familiarizing themselves with now? Uh, for example, IFS, mindfulness, et cetera, uh, while still an, an, an aspiring leader uh, to better set us up for future success. <laughs> Words right now. Set us up for success in the future. Not asking for a silver bullet, but things one can do in anticipation of being in that leadership role. Yep. I mean, I think... Um... I think with a lot of kind of journeys where you're kind of moving into the next stage, what you tend to happen in your career is actually you tend to find that you get promoted not into a role that you haven't been doing, but because you've been practicing some of that already. So you tend to find that, you know, maybe a lead designer is made a head of design because they're already um, delivering some of that value. They might just not know it. So again, like, you know, talk about emotional intelligence and having awareness of yourself, having self-awareness, I think is really, really important. Being aware of what the journey is, being aware of what the expectations are. Um, I think there's lots of reading you can do. I mean, there's tons of books out there. Um, I think, you know, Julie Ju's book is a really, really good a primer, The Making of a Manager. Um, I think that's just a really good explanation of, of kind of like a, a mindful kind of sort of leadership practice. So I'd highly recommend that. It's a really short book as well. You can, I was going to say you could do it on a plane flight, but not as many people are flying these days as possible. You can do it as a weekend. Um, obviously, you know, I, one of the reasons I, I, I founded a little um, design leadership conference, I'm not involved in it at all anymore. So this is not like a, 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 a an overt plug, but I found myself talking to a lot of design leaders who were having the same challenges and designers wanting to become design leaders. And I thought rather than, um, having the same conversation with people over and over again, why don't we put an event together? And so there's a conference called Leading Design, which is actually on in New York today and yesterday. And I highly recommend if you want to want to kind of improve your leadership practice, go to conferences and events like that where other people are around. One of the best things I think that came out of Leading Design isn't so much going and learning practical skills, although there are practical skills to learn, but it's being in a room with a bunch of people who are on a similar journey to you and realizing that everyone hasn't figured it out. And so just this sort of community of practice and actually leading design also has a Slack community of about 3000 heads, directors and VPs of design and being around other people who, um, who are also on that journey, I think is really important having these support networks. I think peer support is great. So I think if you are a, a new design leader, or you're looking in that, find other people in your community that are also going through the similar, you know, similar journey and maybe, you know, create a little success circle, a little group of, of four or six of you that meet up on a regular basis. You know, people talk about success circles or people talk about like a board of me, like a group of people that can support each other. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, and then I think the other thing is just kind of, you know, practical things like how to do great one-to-ones. You know, um, there's a lot that I find challenging in the book Radical Candor. I think some of the language for me is quite triggering. Talking about rock stars and superstars is, is not a language that I particularly warm to. Um, you know, I think there are enough egotistical assholes in the industry already without telling everyone they're a rock star or a superstar. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of practical advice in there, and particularly around how to give good feedback, how to run 101s that are focused around career building rather than status updates. I think these are things that people get wrong really quickly. I think a lot of early leaders think that one-to-one is a status update, it's a project management update, whereas really it should be around understanding the people that you're working with and helping them along their, their kind of journey. Um, uh, yeah, so I think I think it's just that. I think it's just re- you know reading as much as you can, reading some books, going to conferences, getting coaches, getting mentorship. There's free mentorship at things like ADP list as well. So there's lots of opportunities out there that you can you can follow. So question from Vinish. I have a feeling that ICs who bring an agency experience have a certain differentiator uh, to be design leaders in-house. 
how can they transfer their decision models and skills to their teams quickly enough because the agency model is entirely different? Great question. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think that, I think that ICs, individual contributors who have worked in an agency setting can be incredibly valuable to startups, particularly because you tend to find that ICs from an agency space are used to doing the zero to one kind of role. They're used to kind of taking an idea that's never existed before, breathing life into it. And that's typically what you find um, you're doing as a founding designer. Founding designers are usually the first designer on the team, and they're the ones that are kind of going from zero to one. Um, I think as a leadership role, though, I think a lot of design leaders inside agencies um, are kind of often bridging the gap between, between individual contributor and manager because a lot of the design leaders are quite kind of, sorry, a lot of designers in agencies are very kind of self-managing um, and there's often not a lot of kind of corporate structure and kind of sort of, you know, um, coordination that you need to do with an agency because all the coordination is externally focused and often the coordination is done by project managers um, rather than kind of managing inter-team stress and rivalry, which is, a, you know, a lot of what happens in-house. So I'm not entirely convinced that the agency leaders have a particular edge on in-house leaders, but I do think agency ICs do. And I think making that transition, um, you know, can, can, you know can, can be, you know, from a from an agency IC into a founding designer, then from a founding designer into a leader. But to be honest, like the people I know that have transitioned from being an agency leader into an in-house leader, they find it incredibly frustrating because the pace is so much slower. There's so much more politics. Um, that there's a frustration of like, you know, as an agency leader, I would have been able to do this work in three months and it's now taken us 12 um, that I'm having to kind of do so much more stuff to support, you know, to get this over the line, because, you know, when you're an agency person, you are paid to deliver this thing. Whereas often in, in house, you're fighting against a whole bunch of competing priorities. Engineering wants to go this way. Marketing wants to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of navigation, which I think a lot of agency leaders, they're often good at stakeholder management, but they often are surprised by, how much of their role is stakeholder management, and particularly at a lower end, like if you're a manager or a head rather than a VP, so much of your work is just that coordination and that kind of playing interference, you know, that people talk about kind of like being a, uh, I assume I'm allowed to swear on this, this podcast because I already have, so I do apologise. Hope I haven't ruined your rating. But, you know, people talk about being a shit umbrella rather than a, than a shit funnel. And the shit funnel obviously space shit all over everybody. The shit umbrella protects your team from all of the other crap. And so I think as a, as a leader, you often find yourself having to do a lot more absorbing of all the other stuff to kind of protect your team energy and enthusiasm. And I think, I think agency leaders are surprised by the amount of stuff that, that they have to do on that front. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, one, one question from Ruzana. Uh, thanks for the insight on needing the reps before becoming the first designer in a team. But I was hired recently as a first designer and it went horribly wrong. I had to leave after four months and now I'm unsure what my next step is. I'm sorry to hear you had that experience. I'm really interested in the kind of lead designer space. So I wear a couple of hats. So at the moment, two days a week, I'm coaching design leaders, heads, directors, VPs of design and product. Two days a week, I'm a VC, a venture capitalist, and I support um, early stage startups you know, looking at funding and then helping them sort of build their, their early stage team. So at the moment, I'm getting so many leaders contact me looking for, for founding designers. Um, and I think there's a real problem there. I think a founding designer is a brilliant role for the right person and the right team. Um, I think what typically happens is um, startups don't really know what value good designers can deliver. So they often end up hiring they either often end up hiring two junior designers that are more stylists with the idea that they want to have the stylist in a production role to literally just manifest their ideas and deliver their ideas. And so if you end up hiring a stylist rather than a designer, you can end up with a product that looks really nice, but actually doesn't meet your users' needs. So that can be that can be challenging. So often those first roles, if the if the if the owner doesn't or the founder doesn't really understand design, um, they might hire to junior. And then what I see happening is basically you launch a thing um, that looks nice and looks slick, but actually doesn't meet the, the needs of, the, you know, it's not a great business. The other end of the spectrum, 
or the other side of the coin is that they want to hire somebody that's got a brand name logo. You know, they want to say, we need to hire a designer that was, you know, a senior designer at Airbnb. Um, or we want to hire someone that was in an agency. And then two problems happen. So first of all, one problem happens is they might treat that designer like the, the junior, in which case that designer is going, well, look, I need to go and do some research. I need to, I need to um, understand the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And the founder's going, no, 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 just build what I tell you to do, which is a deeply frustrating and unsatisfying experience. Or what happens is you hire a designer that's used to working in a team that has a big research team that has a design system. And what you're used to doing is being part of a team that is assembling, you know, you're not doing the zero to one, you're doing like the, the 10 to 20, you know, kind of phase or, you know, whatever it's 90 to 100. Um, and so you try and apply your big um, product industry thinking to this small, agile, nimble startup that just needs speed and production. And, and that also can be unsatisfying. So I think the first thing to do is to, to really think about the skills you have and whether it's best suited to being in a, a founding role or not. And I think a lot of people are, but it might be that you just found yourself in a role that wasn't the right fit for your skills. It might also have been that you found yourself in a role where the founder didn't understand the skills you bought and there's a mismatch there. So a lot of the thing around kind of the advice I give to, to founding designers is, is you've got to, you know, you've got to interview the design or the founders as much as I interview you. No, if if you're being bought in six or nine months later and they've already got a design, you know, already got a, a website, you know, or product built, why didn't they bring you in earlier? There might be a very good reason, but there might be not a good reason. There might be that they just don't value design. What do they understand about what a good designer is? Do they think you're just a production person or are they wanting to have input on a broader, you know, kind of interaction design, UX design level? Um, and so, you know, it might be that you just had bad luck. It might be that, you know, when you go and start looking for another founding designer role, because there are many people I know that have great founding designer experiences that you might just find the right team. So I guess a lot of this is kind of like, you know, causation versus correlation. Like, is the problem that you were the wrong fit for the role or was the problem that you were the wrong fit for the company? And actually you'd be a brilliant first designer for a company that understands the value you can bring. And so figuring that out. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would I would try not, and also to be honest, like a lot of founders are just psychopaths. I mean, a lot of founders are just really, really difficult people to work for. So, you know, make sure you do your due diligence, make sure you understand what the founder relationship is going to be like first. Um, because if you find yourself working with someone like that, no matter how good you are, you're not going to have a great experience. But but for a lot of people, I actually think the founding designer role could be great. So I think the perfect shape for me as a founding designer is somebody who's five or six years in their career, who has been in an environment where they've modeled good behavior, that is comfortable in an IC role where they're able to do the zero to one thing, but do it really fast. They're not needing a lot of support, not needing a lot of research, not needing a lot of content strategy or whatever, because you're going to be a design team of one. So you've got to be really good at building and building fast, but also building with opinion and being able to push back on, on what the founder thinks they want and be able to convince them what they actually need so you've also got to be quite mature and have quite a lot of kind of um emotional intelligence because you've got to be able to navigate quite strong opinioned individuals and be able to know when to when to double down and, and, and influence and when to kind of step away but what often happens really quickly is if if you find yourself in a role and the company is doing well, you know, you'll be the first designer for three or four months, then there'll be a second one, then there'll be a third one, then you'll be a lead, then you'll be ahead. 18 months later, you will have had three or four years worth of career experience. Like you will now be leading a team of people, leading a team of five or six people. Like I've got friends that literally, you know, their second job, they landed in a, in a unicorn startup where three years later, you know, so five years into their career, they are VP of design of a team of 20 or 30 people because they've had that kind of battleful promotion. They found themselves in a role where the speed of the company growing has forced them to grow at a much elevated pace. And in a way, like, and you've got to be comfortable with that. You've got to have this sense of equanimity to be able to grow at the rate the company's growing. But the, the alternative is you go and join a company where your pace of development is related to when the person above you leaves. So this is why I see a lot of people who are 10 or 15 years in their career have only got to the same level as someone that might be four or five years in their career, because 
the only way that they can progress in their in their current company is when their boss leaves and then they take their boss's role then that boss leaves and they take that boss's role or you jump to another company in 18 months you jump to another company in 18 months you jump to another company in 18 months and then you're you're hopping from lily pads of your career whereas if you find yourself in a you know in a fast growing company it's the the geyser of of um uh, you know exploding around you that kind of forces you to 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 upskill so it can be a great job for some people it can be an absolute nightmare for others yeah Th- thank you so much we're going to have one more question this is from carl uh should a manager ever give up the craft completely um i mean it's it's really down to individuals i mean i it also depends on your definition of craft. I mean, a lot of people will talk about the role of a design manager is you are designing still, you're just designing systems, you're designing cultures, you're designing processes and practices. Um, I think that's a lovely soundbite. The reality is that when people talk about design, they're not necessarily talking about pure abstract problem solving. A lot of the time, design leaders still want to be actively involved in, in, in shipping UI elements. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, Occasionally, particularly if you're in a smaller company, you can find roles as a leader where you are still actively contributing to the direction of travel of the of, of the product. Um, you know, often design leaders stop delivering delivering the craft, but they often end up in an advisory role. They often end up kind of as a creative director, so they're still using their creative abilities, but they're not producing. Other people find that the, the role of manager is all consuming at work. Uh, and actually, you know, there's an argument, uh, and this is a kind of a model I followed throughout my career, which is, um, well, first of all, work on your business, not in your business. Um, and secondly, you should always be trying to to um, make yourself redundant. So, you know, if if you know if you are the best designer in the team, I would argue you're a really really bad manager because you've hired people that are worse than you. Like as a manager, your job is to hire people better than you. And if you hire people better than you as a designer, eventually you're the worst designer on the team. And if you're the worst designer on the team, it's just ego that's making you go, well, I'm going to keep on designing. You know, like, why would you want the worst designer on the team to be be shipping UI apart from the fact it's for your own self-interest? So hire people who are better than you, who are constantly better than you, provide space to let them grow. But that doesn't mean that you can't still be active. You know, I know a lot of design leaders and senior ICs um, who do a lot of work outside. You know, maybe they've got their own little you know, a side agency that do little bits of work for friends. Maybe they're out there, you know, making millions shipping NFTs. You know, maybe they are doing craft in a different form. Maybe, you know, they've taken up woodwork or leather work or, you know, weirdly a lot of people I know who who have become full-time design leaders end up picking up some kind of physical craft because they want to still feel connected to making. Um, but actually, they don't want to be spending their evenings kind of, you know, making bits and bites. So they, they, they make, you know, pottery or what have you. Um, I do come across a very, very few design leaders who make it through an entire career and are still practitioners. Um, Alex, I can never remember how to pronounce Alex's surname, but Alex, who was the kind of the, the chief design officer at Airbnb, has retained being a, a practicing designer. Um, you know, through all of that time, he was still a very, very talented designer. And when he left Airbnb so two or three years ago, he started his own kind of design practice. Um, I know a handful of design leaders who have been operating at a really, really high level that have been able to maintain their craft to that level. Um, but it's quite rare. And so I think for me, a lot of it is around like not wanting to infantilize, but I think being a design leader is often like being a parent. And when you're a parent, you often end up having to make a decision as to whether you want to live your own unique life or you want to be out clubbing and doing all the things that you used to do. But if you do that, you're going to probably be a terrible parent. Or if you want to kind of put all of your energy and enthusiasm into growing this new life. And most of the parents I know, you know, they're not clubbing anywhere near as much as they used to. They're not going out and spending money on lovely clothes because their clothes are now covered in baby sick. Um, what they're doing is they're putting all of their energy into these other lives around them. And as a manager, I think a lot of the time, that's what you do. You're, you're forgoing your own personal interests, which is often design, in order to support other people around you. Um, but there's a level thing as well. Like, you know, you can be a really, really amazing manager on a team where you're still doing IC work. 
Um, you can also be a really, really senior IC. I mean, this is the other thing. Like Management is not the only route. You can be a staff designer. You can be a principal designer where you are leading people from an emotional level. You're just not leading them in terms of you know, managing their career. And so I know a number of people who are staff designers, principal designers, who are doing amazing work still, who have that leadership status, but what they're not doing is they're not, you know, doing performance reviews and deciding what the the um, the composition of the team is. And so, yeah, there's a misnomer, misnomer, and this is why we call leading design, leading design and not managing design, because you can be a practitioner and a leader. Um, but I think it's really difficult to be a manager and a practitioner because quite often the amount of work you need to put in management just overtakes. I mean, again, I'll finish up because you probably all want to go off and do stuff now. But um, I tend to find that like a manager can't manage more than sort of five to eight people effectively. You know, so if you've got a team of one or two people that you're managing, you've probably got enough bandwidth to do some design work. If you're managing five people, you might be able to get a bit of design work in. You're managing eight, ten people. Either you're being a rubbish designer or you're being a terrible manager or you're probably being both. You've shared many, many, many gems and many, many insights. Uh, So if folks want to share this on Twitter or anywhere else on social, be sure to tag Andy at at Andy Bud and also tag at design to be design underscore to be. Um, Thank you so much for your time today, Andy. Uh, One last question and we'll keep it super short. Um, If you could ask one thing of folks listening in relation to what we spoke of today, what's one thing that they could start doing? Oh, God, that's a really tough question. I mean, I think to, to some extent, it's just, you know, present as a leader. You know, we're all leaders in our own right. You know, leadership is not necessarily a structural thing. Management is. But when you go into work, you know, have the characteristics of a leader, help people, be thoughtful, be considerate, be compassionate, listen to people, um, understand yourself, understand your your abilities and 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 be there for others. And so I think, you know, we we all have a leadership role to take. Um, it's not a thing that we kind of defer to other people. And I think the best leaders are people that that have been doing that job for six months already, and the rest of the people around them have identified that. You know, have identified that like this person is the linchpin. If this person left, we'd be really in trouble. So so be that person. Be helpful. Be thoughtful. Be considerate. Lead your team. And you will naturally evolve into that role um, rather than waiting for someone to kind of knight you or or give you the authority to be a leader. Like the, the people that are waiting around and getting really angry because they haven't been made a leader yet, I think are, are living in this kind of like, you know, this, this sort of feeling that the world owes me something. Um, you know, you know, haven't how haven't you seen my amazing skills? It's like we well, haven't demonstrated them. You know, demonstrate the skills people will see. And so 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 be that leader and then and, and then you know everything else will kind of follow take the initiative folks. Uh, so thank you everyone uh, who is on the call and thank you all for uh, your activity in the chat and your amazing questions that uh, made this uh, recording what it is. Uh, and thank you so much, Andy, for, for your time. I so enjoyed uh, this conversation. Thank you very much. See you soon. And that wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.